0: God's Word, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 19. Choir, thank you for leading us so beautifully this morning. Orchestra, thank you for leading us so beautifully this morning. What a powerful time of worship, Brent and Linda. Thank you also. Genesis chapter 19. I tell you, one of the things that I enjoy is driving through some of these small towns and kind of speculating where their names come from. I've always been interested before Quarter X was finished, I 22. You would drive through Old 78 and you would get to Gwyn and Gwyn, and you know that there's a, a story behind that. A lot of the towns in, uh, have, across our nation have biblical origins. You go down past Selma and you'll come to Sardis, Alabama. Sardis there from Revelation 3. If you go uh, down even further south, you'll get to, to Dothan, Alabama from Genesis 37. If you drive north, into Mississippi, you'll get to Corinth, Mississippi. If you go over to Georgia, you can go to Bethlehem or Salem, or you can even get to Smyrna. All biblical towns. I tell you this, though, in all of the towns that I've driven through, I've never come into a town that said, welcome to Sodom. (laughs) I don't know. I, I I would hate to be on the Chamber of Commerce that had to come up with a byline for a city called Gomorrah. I mean, those Sodom and Gomorrah, they're they're city names that are retired. They're city names that that hang in the rafters like Hall of Fame uh, retirees from the NFL and NBA. Their names and their numbers are never to be used again. And so it is with Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, you'll hear Sodom and Gomorrah, but you'll hear it in this kind of sense, that such and such place is a modern-day Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah is a stand-in, a a fill-in, a a symbol for God's wrath and judgment and destruction upon a city, two cities be it, for sin. It it is a stark story. I think in many ways... We don't use those town names because we don't want to talk about the sordid affair. It starts not in Genesis chapter 19, but it goes back to Genesis chapter 12 and even to Genesis chapter 13. The first mention of Sodom is there in Genesis chapter 13. If you're visiting for the first day to our church, we don't just randomly pick a Sunday to preach on Sodom and Gomorrah, but rather we're walking through the story of Abraham and Sarah. We're walking through their narrative in the book of Genesis and we find ourselves after we were in Genesis 18 last week, now in Genesis 19, thinking about the danger of lingering spiritually in your heart and in my heart also. Sodom and Gomorrah comes to us after the Lord speaks to Abraham and says, I'm going to come back in a year, this is the account in Genesis chapter 18, and your wife will be pregnant with the promised child. Sarah overhears this and her reaction, which is not surprising to us, because in Genesis 17, it was Abraham's reaction, laughter. The laughter of disbelief. The laughter of two decades of waiting and hoping and being disappointed. So we're not surprised that she would laugh. Right after her laughter, the Lord takes Abraham aside, and we discover this interesting pattern of intercessory prayer, at Genesis chapter 18, where the Lord sets aside Abraham and allows him into his divine counsel, saying to Abraham, I'm going to destroy Sodom. We have the uh, account of the reason in verse 20 of chapter 18 that the sin of the city was grave. And then a very interesting pattern. Abraham says, well, Lord, if there's 50 righteous people in Sodom, will you destroy the city? If there are 50 righteous people, the Lord says, no, I will not destroy the city. Well, what about 45? What about 40? Be it that I'm not presumptuous, but what about 30? What about 20? What about 10? And here is the sad state of affairs for the city of Sodom, that there were not 10 righteous people in the city. And what we discover through Genesis 19, that there really isn't one righteous person in the city. Genesis chapter 19, starting in verse 1, reads this way that the two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No. We will spend the night in the town square, but he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and they entered his house and he made them a feast and he baked unleavened bread and they ate. Now what follows after Genesis chapter 19 verse 3 is what I will summarize, but it is in every account an R-rated picture of the sinful mentality of the city. The angels... Much to the protestation to Lot, Lot convinces them, stay in the house. They were going to sleep in the city gate there in the the open air there. As Lot takes them into his house, we begin to see why Lot would have been so insistent where they were to stay because there is a sensual, lust-filled mob that tries to beat down the doors of Lot, crying out, Give us these two men that you have in your home so that we can have our way with them. You begin to see the pollution of even Lot's ploy, his bargaining agreement with this. Lust filled mob that is calling for action here. He he says what is unthinkable for us, but we see the depth of sin that has really even uh, crept into Lot's heart. Where he says, "Don't take these two visitors, but take today my two virgin daughters." They refuse the offer. They press in and they press in and they press in, trying to to beat down the door, to, to get in, to forcibly remove these two angelic visitors so that they can have their way with them. And it is in this moment of divine intervention that these two angels push back the mob, blind them, bring Lot back into the house. And then we pick up the story in verse 15. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up! Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you've shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, the city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth where Lot, and when Lot came to Zoar, then in verse 24, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all of the valley. And all of the inhabitants of the cities, and even what grew on the ground. But Lot's life, Lot's wife, behind him, looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. It is a it is a sad story. It's a sordid, sinful story. It is a story that maybe some of you are familiar with. Maybe there's some of you in this room that have grown up in the church and you've heard this story preached. You've heard this story taught in a Sunday school environment. Maybe you've taught this story. Maybe you're new to the Christian faith. Maybe you're visiting and you've not heard this story. I want us to to pry into the details of this story by looking at three elements of the actual story this morning. The, The first element that I want us to look at is the setting of Sodom and Gomorrah, I want you to see that, that this really is Sin City. The setting, notice that this is more than an isolated occasion. This is more, there is a reinterpretation of this passage here that says that this is just solely a, a lack of hospitality and that the reason that God uh, condemns uh, the residents of both Sodom and Gomorrah is because they don't show hospitality here. But notice, throughout Genesis 13, 17, 17, 18, and even 19, even into the New Testament, there is the extent of corruption that is really clear in the biblical account. In verse 4 of Genesis chapter 19, notice that the extent is described by both the young and the old being a part of this lust-filled mob, that both the young and the old, they demanded that Lot give over these angelic visitors here. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 6-8, through we discover Peter reflecting upon this story here and describes Lot as a person who was distressed. Literally, in the original language of the New Testament, you could translate it. He was worn out by the perversion of of the citizens here. This isn't just a one time rash decision. This isn't just mob mentality overtaking them and them making a mistake of, of stupidity. Rather, this is a part of the ebb and the flow of these people here. It, it illustrates that their moral compass was broken even before Lot showed up as a citizen of Sodom. Genesis chapter 13. When Abraham goes one direction and Lot goes one direction and they're going to dwell, Lot that is, and his family in Sodom, we have a divine perspective upon this city, even in Genesis chapter 13, starting in verse 13, that now the men of Sodom were wicked, they were great sinners against the Lord. And there's a sense in which, just as in Genesis chapter 6, where the the sin of all of humanity was so broad and so widespread and God brought about a a flood as punishment and the wrath of God and the judgment of God upon these people. So we have a localized account of this in Genesis chapter 19 here. I want you to see the setting, but I also want you to see two characters here because as we look at these characters, we begin to see a little bit of ourselves and our story in this story here. Now the first character that I want you to to just look at this morning starts and you see uh, at least this description of him in verse 1, chapter 19. And that's the the character of a lingering Lot. Notice where Lot is in your copy of God's Word. Uh, The first description we have in Genesis chapter 19 is that Lot is doing what? He is sitting at the gate of Sodom. Now, what does that mean? Well, it can mean two things, and and scholars are not divided here, but it's very difficult to to press into what exactly does it mean. It could mean that he's a protector of the city, that that he is responsible for for, uh, being the first line of defenses to be able to say, uh, we have invaders that are coming in here. There's another line of interpretation that historically could look at this, that he's an influential leader of the city. Either way, whether he's a protector or whether he's an influential leader of the city, you discover here that that Abraham's nephew is fully dwelling in Sodom. And that the spirit of Sodom is dwelling inside of him. We discover that the sin and the stain of sin has, has pervaded his life here. And, it, and it's exemplified when he is pressed into this moment in that evening where the mob is pressing into the door. That his reaction is to show the pollution of that ploy that he bargains his two virgin daughters for protection here. There, there's a sense of moral insanity that is occurring and is to be observed in this passage here, Lot's moral compass, like the city's moral compass, is broken. And sin is staining his own life, is staining his family. And we're going to continue to see that even out of Sodom, sin remains and stains their future here. Now, notice the salvation of Lot and his family. It isn't out of their righteousness. It isn't out of their longing. Rather, they're lingering in this place that the angels are saying you need to leave and it is God's intervention that pulls them away even while their hands are clutching onto the city that they so long to stay in verse 16 notice the description of Lot he does what in the city he does what in light of the angels saying what they're going to do he lingers in the city He can't bear the thought of leaving behind what he has grown to love. And that's your temptation. That's my temptation. That is our temptation as we look at this story here this morning. It is easy for us to look back upon Genesis chapter 19 with a a self-righteous 35,000 foot view that says, look at those sinners in that city, how horrible they were without seeing that we, me, you, us, we are residents of Sodom. Sodom dwells in the heart of every Christian and non-Christian, every Christian who is already set free but not yet fully glorified and sinless. We know what it is to linger in Sodom. We we know what it is to, to linger in sin. We know what it is to, to linger in lust a bit more, to linger in gossip a bit more, to linger in materialism and to linger in pride and to linger in laziness. Paul would say in Romans chapter 12, you called to stop being conformed to the patterns of this world. It is a choice that we must make. Our default position is to be shaped by the Sodom-like spirit of our world. Our default shape. Is to be pressed and conformed and to be made into the image, not of Christ, but of the flesh and of the world. And that's your temptation. That's my temptation here. And the mistake is, is to talk about them without talking about us. This past summer, I had the great privilege to spend just a few days with our chapel choir as they were in St. Louis on a mission tour. And one of the places that they stopped and they, they got to, to experience but then also to, to sing at was a place called City Museum. I don't know if you're familiar with St. Louis, but sort of on the, on the right edge of the downtown area of St. Louis was this abandoned building that this kind of entrepreneur Uh, bought and retrofitted this and it is very difficult to adequately describe what city museum is it's it's a renovated uh, four or five story building that has become this offbeat urban kind of playground they have all of these things that teenagers would love to do and young kids would love to do but there is a wackiness to this place it's it's a fun place Now, in this place, because there are all these unique kind of rooms here, there's one room that had this kind of old-timey carnival, old-timey fair kind of exhibits that were in there, and and one of them struck my attention. I think we have a a clip of it here. It was this repeat or repent It was just this sign there that really strikes me as something that's very close to the heart of the decisions that we all have to make. The A or the N, that's what we linger around. We we linger around the question, will we repeat the sin that God has set us free from? Or will we repent? The the decision is the decision whether we're going to, to write an A or we're going to write an N. All of us linger around this question, repeat or Repent. Repeat or repent? It is a lingering question. Lot, in his own strength, he wants to repeat. He doesn't want to repent. He needs divine intervention to draw him out, and these angelic visitors pull him away as he's clutching on to a place that he doesn't want to leave. That's the first character that I want you to discover, the character of a lingering Lot. And and the final character that I want us to look at here is a longing Lottie. Now, we don't know biblically what Lot's wife's name was. I mean, we just don't know this. I mean, there's nowhere in the Genesis account, there's nowhere in the New Testament where we have uh, Lot's Wife's name. There's some Jewish extra biblical tradition that would say that in tradition that Lot's wife was named Edith. Uh, some people, uh, there's another tradition that says her name is Ado. It just doesn't work as well. Calvin Miller, who taught at Beeson Divinity School, has a poem called Lot in Lottie. And so I'm going to just go with the spirit of, of Calvin Miller, and we'll call her Lottie. No offense to the patron saint of Southern Baptist Missions, Lottie Moon here. But it is important for us to understand this is an actual person whose actual decisions really had consequences for her life and her family. Now, as we look at a a longing Lottie here, we discover the story of judgment in verse 23. The sun rises upon the earth and the Lord rains down sulfur and fire from heaven and she looks back and she becomes a pillar of salt. And if you're familiar with this story, it's at this point that you say, this isn't fair. Is it at this point in the story that you would say, well, all of us would have looked back. I mean, is there not a sense of curiosity that we would have in a place where God is bringing about judgment that we wouldn't just turn aside and look over our shoulder and see our home and to see where our heart was, where we were raising our daughters and wonder what this would look like, but that's not the story. Oh, it might be a cursory reading of the story, but it is not the account that we have here in Genesis chapter 19. Notice in verse 22 that the Lord says to Lot, uh, as he is not going to start to the destruction until he gets to Zoar, until Lot and his family are safe away from the effects of the sulfur and fire that is going to rain down upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Then we get to verse 24, and what And who is there? Well, the what is, is that Lot has made his way to a place of protection and to a place of safety. The who here in this passage here is the but of verse 26. But Lot's wife behind him. So what we discover in this passage here is that Lottie, Lot's wife, isn't in a momentary moment of weakness looking over her shoulder, glancing out of curiosity to see what's happening here. But she is seemingly refusing the encouragement to leave Sodom behind. And she is longing to stay in the place where her heart is because home is where your heart is. And Lottie's heart was back in Sodom. And as we look at this passage here, what we discover is is that God is calling her to leave that place behind. And she is consumed by her longing for all that she cannot leave behind in this moment. She is consumed by her longing in this moment for all that she can't leave behind. There's a principle From this passage that I want you to to hold on to, and this is the principle, the unknown future ahead wasn't as good in her mind as the past that she was called to leave behind. And this is true for your life, and it's true From my life, that oftentimes we're having to repeat or to repent. We're having to linger in this momentary discussion and question uh, will will we be willing to follow God to the unknown future, or rather will we be tempted to to long for and to live in the past that God has called us to leave behind? And what do we learn from Lottie? What do we learn from Lot's wife? It's interesting that Jesus in Luke chapter 17, he pauses and he uses Lot's wife as an illustration. And notice the principle that he illustrates here. He says in Luke chapter 17, verse 32, remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Now here's the question for you and for me. The question is, is what will you not leave behind? What can you not leave behind? Some of you are familiar, there's a there's a band called U two. They're fronted by this Irish uh, man by the name of Bono. That's not his real name. You know the band here. They've been a, a rock band for 40 years or so, and you know that they've grown up with this Irish Catholic background. And many, if not all, of their albums are replete with scriptural allusions. And to understand that band, you too is to be uh, a person that understands that that much of the lyricism of, of Bono is is filled with biblical passage. In 2000. In one, they released an album that was entitled this, All That You Can't Leave Behind. It's a biblical title, All That You Cannot Leave Behind. And really the cornerstone of this album is the fourth track on the album that is entitled Walk On. It's really the hinge of the album in many ways. And listen to the lyrics because as you listen to the lyrics, what you discover is you discover Lottie's story in these lyrics. In Genesis chapter 19, we read, you're you're packing a suitcase for a place none of us has been. A place that has to be believed to be seen. And I know it aches, and I know that your heart breaks. Walk on. Leave it behind. You've got to leave it behind. All that you fashion, all that you make, all that you build, all that you break, all that you dress up, all that you scheme, all that you wreck. All that you hate, walk on. Would y'all like me to sing that song right now? No. Can we get the orchestra back, John? Can we get the, no? John's, <laughs> I got a thumb down from our, 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 our minister of worship just then. So uh, this song illustrates very vividly what all of us live and face. It it grasps what is vitally important for us to consider. And that is the powerful lure of the past in your life and in my life. You might as well, in, in the side of those lyrics, put in parentheses, not only Genesis 19, but put in parentheses, Philippians chapter 3, because Paul would say this, But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The mistake of Lottie, the mistake of Lot's wife, the mistake that you and I follow in her footsteps in making is that there are times where we will refuse to leave behind what God has set us free from. That oftentimes we we dwell in a past that God has set us free from and called us to walk on. And physically and spiritually... There are consequences of that. We see these consequences in the most vivid of of illustrative purposes here in the life of Lot's wife here. But all of us in this room understand the lure and the longing of the past and the consequences that it makes for you and for me. While Satan cannot steal our salvation, he desires to steal the joy of your salvation. And one of the ways that he does that is by pulling you back in the tentacles of the past And you, and you take those grudges and they foster this sense of frustration with those that are closest to you. Some of you in this room understand what it's like to be married for years and to have conversations that you thought were emotionally buried and put in the backyard of the marriage. And in a moment, we, we dig those up. Those smelly corpses And in a moment of frustration, what do we do? We pull those out and we dump those oftentimes on those that are closest to it, be it our our children, be it our spouses. God calls us to to leave things behind, but at times we go back to those places and and we pull them back and and we use them as weapons in the relationships that we have. What? What? Is in your life that you just refuse to leave behind. There's some of you that professionally understand what it's like to be in such close proximity with people, and over a period of time, you get so frustrated and you begin to harbor such resentment against an acquaintance at work or even a close coworker at work. And there was something that he said, there was something that she said five years ago or 10 years ago, and you will not leave that behind. That moment is a moment that you pause that person in. And in that moment, you confine that person to that place, and ultimately, you confine yourself. What do you refuse to leave behind? What do you refuse to to see the bright light of God's forgiveness shine upon in your past? What are the fresh waves of the air of forgiveness that you refuse to to allow to be left in the past, but you you dig it up and you carry it with you. What are you going back to and lingering and longing? And What have you made a home that God has called you to leave behind? This is the question of Lot. This is the question of Lottie. What today do you need to leave behind? I'm 100% that that, that there's a grudge that needs to be left behind in the sanctuary this morning. I'm 100% sure there's a habit that needs to be left behind in the sanctuary this morning. I'm 100% sure there are thought patterns that need to be left behind in the sanctuary this morning. Where are you lingering like Lot? Where are you longing like Lottie here? Today, Christian, do not linger in Sodom. Today, Christian, don't go back longing Longing for what God has called you to walk on past. Know today, child of God, that the future ahead is much more glorious than all that you're called to leave behind. Let us pray. Lord God, we understand that there are lingering and longing lures in all of our life calling us back to those places that you've called us to walk home past. Today, We want to follow in the footsteps of what the Apostle Paul called us to do, to forgetting what is in the past, but but pressing ahead, pressing forward, fixing our eyes upon you and the prize that is found in you as our Savior and as our Lord. And we understand that we will not do this in our own strength. We cannot do this in our own strength. Give us your grace as we linger. Give us your hope as we long for those places that you've called us to walk on by. Forgive us when we fail you in these areas. Give us grace in the moment. Give us grace for the walk ahead. Help us intervene as we seek oftentimes to to allow bitterness and resentment and grudges And those momentary conversations that that are so long past, they continue to define us and they continue to confine us. Thank you, God, that you have given us freedom in our present. You've given us freedom from our past. Let us walk into the glorious future of your grace, knowing that today we can only do that through the finished work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You give us hope. And so today we surrender all we surrender our lingering. We surrender our longing. We surrender our inability to walk on today. We surrender it to you, the one who is merciful, the one who gives us hope. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.